Hello, listener, and welcome to Straight Shot Health Talk. This is the podcast that provides honest and straightforward information about health, wellness, and how to survive our crazy healthcare system. This is for people who want to focus on getting well instead of just treating symptoms. Sound like you? Then let's get started. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Straight Shot Health Talk. This is your host, Dr. Kevin. And for today, we have a wonderful guest. Her name is Jana Friedley, and she is an associate professor of medicine at the University of Washington. Uh, she has a host of, of different titles here. She has been involved with some very prominent studies, which have got a lot of press, a lot of controversy in them. Very good studies, by the way, some of my favorites. And she also serves as co-director of the Comparative Effectiveness Cost and Outcomes Research Center up in Seattle. Uh, Jana, thank you for coming on. Uh, you're welcome. It's great to be here, Kevin. <laughs> now, could you do one thing here? Because we have all these fancy titles, but the, could you describe what the Comparative Effectiveness, Effectiveness Cost and Outcomes Research Center does? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, uh, as, as you said, I'm, I'm an associate professor at the University of Washington. I'm in the Department of Rehab Medicine. I'm a rehab uh, doctor by training. Um, and I have been conducting research uh, for almost 15 years now. Um, and the majority of that has been with this Comparative Effectiveness Cost and Outcomes Research Center. And this is just a group of uh, researchers from all different uh, departments, all different disciplines. We have um, people in uh, radiology. Uh, we have colleagues uh, in um, health services and biostatistics um, and people who really specialize in the conduct of clinical trials and studies that are focused on uh, cost, um, comparative effectiveness of different kinds of treatments, um, comparing one treatment to another, um, and looking at um, patient-centered outcomes, um, so how patients uh, report that they're doing after these different treatments. Um, and we do studies on a wide variety of things, but uh, the bulk of what we have been doing over the last 10 years has been research related to treatments for back pain. All right. Now, um and we're definitely going to delve, delve into that because it's a huge, huge, huge topic here. But could you uh, provide some context on what that means, patient-centered outcomes? Like, what is it that, that when you're looking at outcomes for patients, what is it that you guys are really trying to see? Yeah, so what we're most interested in is how patients uh, report that they are that they are doing um, and in terms of pain and function. And for me as a rehab doctor, function is really important. So I want to know um, from the patient's perspective how they feel that the treatments are affecting the way that they are able to get around, um, the way that they're able to do the things that are important to them in their lives and their, their activities and their participation in, in activities in their lives. So a lot of what we do is ask patients about their experiences um, and, and look at whether or not the treatments have any effect on those, on those things, rather than looking at whether or not a treatment has an effect on something that we measure in the clinic, like your blood pressure or some sort of um, uh, measure of how fast you walk um, in the clinic. We're more interested in, in how patients feel and how patients experience uh, uh, their daily lives. And that's interesting because um, too often we lose track of that, I think, in the medical world. But, but uh, you know, it, it just impresses me that your research is really focused on helping people get back to their lives and doing things that are effective for that and not doing things that are ineffective for that, at least looking at what the data shows on what those treatments may or may not be. Um, mm -hmm. Can I also want to ask a question here? So how are you guys funded? Because this comes up, you know, there's always this news and things like this about 
you know, biases in medicine and, and uh, pharmaceutical companies funding things. And uh, so how, where do you guys get your money from and how do you get paid, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So I work for the university, so I, I get my salary from the university uh, and um, I have a straight salary. I don't get paid for um, the, the clinical work that I do. So if I see more patients, I don't get paid more for, for seeing more patients or doing particular procedures or anything like that. Um, and my research is funded through uh, mostly government agencies. Um, so the NIH, uh, which is um, uh, you know one of the major uh, funders of, of research um, through the government. Um, and then I also get uh, research funding through uh, what's called the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, uh, which is also a government agency, AHRQ. Um, and um, most recently have gotten uh, some funding through PCORI, which is the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, which is technically not part of the government, but was uh, funded uh, through, uh, through the government. Um, and, uh, and so these are, these are agencies that provide uh, grant funding to people like myself who do research. I don't get any funding from uh, pharmaceutical companies or any other um, kind of uh, medical device uh, industry. Uh, or private sponsors. It's all government funded. And, and that funding then pays for, uh, you know, staff, staff for providing the analysis and finding all the data and, and things like that. I'm not assuming that they're giving you a Ferrari to drive around town in. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so the, the, the money goes towards paying um, uh, for my, helping to fund some of my time uh, and my colleagues' time to, to perform the research. It also pays uh, for um, you know, helping patients to participate in the, the trials or reimbursing them for any costs that are associated with participation in research. Um, and and the, the, the cost of care uh, when you're associated with a, with, with a study. So any of the procedures that we do as part of our, our studies uh, can be funded through this. Um, so it's entirely paying for the research itself. All right. And um, this before we delve into the other topic, this is just a personal selfless question of me is, what drove you to the, do this research then? And, you know, why, why you're, you're at a salaried position. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that if you went off into private practice and did things that a lot of rehab doctors do, you can make a lot more money. But what is it that, what is it that drives you? What is it, why do you do this? Well, I actually, uh, the, I started um, being interested in research before I even went to medical school. Uh, and I worked uh, actually for a health plan before I went to medical school and worked uh, in the, the quality improvement department. And so I looked at um, uh, helping to understand why there were variations in the care that was being provided uh, and looking at um, various quality indicators. So um, how, how how well we were providing quality care to the to the members at that time, and I became very interested in this uh, understanding some of these geographic variations and and how we um, how we we perform um, you know medical care, and that prompted me actually to go to medical school um, and get further training in in medicine. And then once I was in medical school, I decided I really liked the clinical work, and so I went to residency. Um, and then uh, decided that I wanted to get back into uh, really quality improvement and really looking at uh, things from a systems level. So how, how do we as a healthcare system provide care and do we provide it in the most efficient way and, and a way that makes sense for, for patients? Um, and so I got very interested in treatments for back pain because it was an area where 
it seems that there was a lot of variation in what people were doing. Um, the outcomes, uh, to be honest, don't seem great um, with, with most of the back tra- uh, pain treatments that we have, and there's a lot of cost associated with them. So I really got interested in looking at um, why there were these variations and what was driving these variations um, and, uh, you know, how, what are some of the effective treatments and what are some of the ineffective treatments and how can we really steer uh, the, the course of what we what we do in medicine towards more effective treatments for back pain. So let's talk a little bit about those those geographic variations because I, I they're they're absolutely astounding to me when you actually look at the data. So could you tell us what do you mean when you're saying geographic mer- variation in these procedures and things for back pain? So um, that just means that in different parts of the country and even in different cities, um, uh, even in small geographic uh, areas, there's a lot of differences in how we um, how we care for people with back pain. And in some areas, you'll see that a lot of people are getting, uh, for example, these epidural steroid injections and, and spine surgeries. And in other, uh, other areas, people aren't getting very many of them at all. And so it's, it's not uh, quite as um, uniform um, as some of the more standard treatments, like, for example, um, well, historically, although this is changing now, but appendectomy for if you have, you have appendicitis, it's pretty consistent across the country that if you have appendicitis, you get an appendectomy. Um, and so when you look at the rates of these kinds of procedures, there's not a lot of variation because it's pretty well accepted what you do in the, uh, uh, you know, for, for that um, uh, condition. With back pain, um, there is no consensus about what you should do and what you shouldn't do. And so we see that there's a lot of variation in what people, the, the kind of care that people provide. Um, and looking at across the country um, where you have these pockets of um, uh, places where they're, they are doing lots and lots of these procedures um, and compare them to places where they're not doing a lot of these procedures and really seeing, well, does that make a difference in, in one area? Are, are we caring for patients better than in, in another area? Or um, does that just reflect that there's a lot of uncertainty or other factors that are um, influencing why we're doing these procedures? Um, so I, I started my, my research looking at Medicare data, which is uh, national Medicare data. Um, and what I found was that there were these huge geographic variations in epidural steroid injection use across the country. Um, and I found that in these areas where we were doing a lot of these injections, um, a higher percentage of people with back pain were getting injections. So it wasn't just that there were more people with back pain in those areas, and that's why we were doing these injections. It, it really seemed that there was a difference in the way that we were treating patients with back pain. And I also found that in those areas where we were doing a higher percentage of these injections, we also had higher surgery rates and a higher percentage of people who were getting both. They were getting epidural steroid injections and they were getting surgery. Um, and that this really correlated most closely with physician supply. So in those areas where there was, were more physicians who did injections and more physicians who did surgeries, we did more surgeries and we did more injections. And, and that was really fascinating to me um, uh, and, and really has driven some of the, the, you know, the research that I've been doing over the last 10 years. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong too, but uh, along with the surgery and the injections, um, opioids, I think, are also have greater prescription rates in areas with high rates of injections as well. Am I, am I wrong on that? Well, it, uh, absolutely. I think that's true. That, uh, we have not specifically looked at that um, uh, in this context, but we have, we have in other studies, uh, for example, in the VA um, uh, data, uh, we've looked at the VA system, and we found that people who were getting injections 
were also the ones that were getting um, uh, opioids and that, that um, by, you know, one of the hopes with getting, uh, you know, in treatments like epidural steroid injections is that it reduces the rate of use of opioids. If you can get an injection, then maybe you won't need to, to use opioids. Uh, but at least our data in the VA suggested that wasn't the case, that those, those patients were actually more likely to be on uh, opioids. Um, so it, 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 it's interesting because it, it seems like in areas where we're doing more procedures and we're doing more treatments, we're, we're doing more treatments across the board. We're, we're trying uh, all sorts of treatments uh, for, for patients with, with back pain. Um, but it doesn't appear that we're really uh, improving the outcomes overall. We're just doing more treatments for those patients. Yeah, and, and so just, I mean, the, the cost for the patient's life, I think, is, um, is important. And, I don't, and for the audience here, I don't want to kind of downplay that at all because we're talking about people's lives, and I never, ever want to put a monetary value on that. But could you touch on just the cost associated with this? Because, and the reason I'm bringing this up is it, it, there isn't an unlimited amount of healthcare dollars. And if we're spending huge amounts of money somewhere, and particularly in an area where we seem to be having the the inverse of what we're trying to achieve, that money comes from somewhere. And and for back pain, it's pretty prominent. Could you comment on just how much money we're spending on back pain? Well, it's, it's in the order of billions of dollars um, in, in treatment for for back pain. Um, it's it's it is one of the most costly um, you know expenditures in, in healthcare is treatment for, for back pain. And so, as you know, and back pain is extremely common. Um, and a lot of these treatments that we're, we're using are very expensive. So surgeries are very, very expensive. Um, even epidural steroid injections, although they're cheaper than surgery, they are, they're fairly expensive um, and, and can, can range anywhere from $500 to you know, $3,000, depending on, um, you know, how, how many injections you get and what type of injection and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, and, and if you're getting treatments, you know, that for a chronic condition that you, that you're being treated for years, um, they, for even for an individual patient, that gets very expensive. Yeah, absolutely. So let's, um, so I, I would just like to talk about your, your study that came out last year, and that was the one in epidural steroid injections for the treatment of spinal stenosis. Can you, can you briefly describe what spinal stenosis is for the audience? So spinal stenosis is a is a degenerative condition of the spine. So it's like arthritis of the of the spine, where you have narrowing of the spinal canal, and that can cause pinching of the nerves um, uh, that that exit the spinal canal. Um, and and so people with spinal stenosis um, typically have a lot of back pain. It can radiate into the legs, um, and they can it can be associated with weakness. Um, some sensory change, the loss of sensation, um, and uh, a lot of trouble with balance um, as well. So it, it, it is a, it's very debilitating, um, and it's, it's something that's, that's fairly common uh, and um, tends to uh, increase in prevalence um, as people get older. And so for, for your study then, because epidural steroid injections have been done for spinal stenosis, what did you guys find? So we did a clinical trial. We, we uh, uh, enrolled 400 patients and we randomized them to receive um, either an epidural steroid injection with lidocaine, which is the standard way that epidural steroid injections are performed. And, and, um, and lidocaine is or, just a just 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 for the non medical. A local anesthetic. Uh, numbing medicine. Uh, yeah. So lidocaine is a numbing medicine. It's a local anesthetic. Okay. 
um, and uh, we randomized them to receive either, either that, um, so what a, a normal epidural steroid injection, or um, we randomized them to receive an injection that didn't have the steroid in it. So it just had the numbing medicine in it. Um, and this numbing medicine is, uh, that we used is lidocaine and, and typically um, lasts no more than two or three hours <clears throat> um, as, a short, as a short-term uh, 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 local anesthetic. Um, and what we found was that while um, we saw improvements in both of the groups in terms of their reports of pain and function um, in the short term um, at three and six weeks um, after, an in, after they got an injection, we didn't see any difference between the two groups. Um, we, we saw essentially at six weeks, which was when we were most interested in looking at uh, the effects of these injections, that there was no difference between the two groups. So it, it didn't seem that the steroid medication um, had any effect on uh, their uh, pain or function. Um, and the steroid medicine is usually what people think is the active treatment. So when you're getting an epidural steroid injection, you're getting an injection into the spine, um, and it's thought that the steroid medication really provides uh, some um, pain relief and some um, anti-inflammatory uh, properties um, to, uh, and, and can relieve some of the pressure around the nerves. Uh, that you experience, and, and we just didn't see uh, much of an effect at all uh, with the, with the steroid. And, and I think that's important to 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 emphasize as well because it's not like even with local anesthetics, but with steroids, they're not a benign medication when we inject these things. And uh, I mean, we have all sorts of pro- you get too many epidural steroid injections, you can have thinning of the bones, you can have things like adrenal suppression, you can have wound healing problems. Um, so. I, you know, just to me, that's just just as astounding as we've spent. I don't know how many years we've been doing epidural. It's like 80 years we've been doing epidural steroid injections with a substance that may or may not be doing anything, but we know that there's associated harms with it. So pretty pretty impressive, at least for me, when I was looking at your 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 results here. Now, um, what about now? So I, there's been other studies, just like everything in 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 medicine, I guess, in life in general, is people have different opinions, and we can look at different data and the same things. And so some pe- there have been some groups and some physician groups that have challenged you on your results um, and said that there was significant improvement for those patients. And, and what, what is your, how, how do you counter that? Or how, how do you actually address those kind of uh, comments? Yeah, so, so in our, our study, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, both groups did improve um, to some extent. Um, and, and so um, people who reported that they had a lot of pain at the beginning, um, on average, people improved in terms of their pain. Um, but it, it just didn't, it wasn't different between the two groups. Um, uh, and, and we saw a little bit more improvement. Uh, and when I'm saying a little, I mean a tiny bit of improvement, more improvement. Um, between the two groups when we looked at their outcomes at three weeks, um, which is three, pretty three short weeks. term saying, after an injection. Yeah, three weeks. That's what you just said, three weeks. At three so not, weeks. Not three months, three weeks. Three weeks. <laughs> but then by six weeks, um, by six weeks, we saw that there was no difference between the two groups. So I, I think the, um, and, and then we looked at how people did a year later and two years later, and, and it looks like um, there was no um, sustained benefit um, at all from, from these injections. So even if there was a tiny bit of improvement with a steroid compared to the lidocaine at three weeks, it didn't persist beyond three weeks. Um, and as you mentioned, it was associated, the steroid um, was associated with um, some significant uh, 
evidence of um, systemic absorption, so that that adrenal suppression, and we saw that in a substantial number of patients in our in our study. Um, so I do think that there's there there is risk associated with it. Some people think that um, because both groups improved, um, that that means that the treatment was effective. Um, and um, this is one of the things that I uh, discuss a lot with with people, um, and and is somewhat. Uh, uh, controversial because uh, when you do a randomized trial, the purpose is to compare two treatments and to see if one is better than the other. Um, and that's exactly what we did. And so our, our trial really showed that this one treatment is not any better than the other treatment. It's not any better. The steroid injection is not any better than the lidocaine injection. Um, but we didn't have a group that we compared if we did nothing. If we did nothing or we sent them to physical therapy or they had surgery or they had some other um, treatment for, for uh, their condition. And so we can't say whether or not um, the lidocaine injection is any better than doing nothing um, or a placebo or if it is, uh, it, it is it in, a, in and of itself an active treatment. And that's where I think a lot of the controversy is. Some people believe that the lidocaine injection itself is a treatment and, and other people believe that it's not a treatment because the lidocaine is so short-acting um, that it's it's not reasonable that it would have a have an effect even even at three weeks after an injection. Yeah, I have um, two pieces on this. Uh, I'm gonna have to write one of them down so I don't forget it. Now, the the first I think is really interesting about the the lidocaine being this you know extended relief lidocaine because oftentimes I see as the people that are really pushing it and speaking as an interventionally trained pain fellow. So the person actually did these injections for, for, for years, you know, using this mindset, this supposedly scientific mindset and, and that we're identifying these pain generators or whatever, but we turn off that same scientific kind of thought pattern when it comes to looking at the uh, pharmacology of, of a local anesthetic, because we know local anesthetics don't last long. Um, and so I, I just think that's interesting because we, we start changing our words to fit the situation, which is a human characteristic. The second part is, is when you were talking just about the, the local anesthetic and um, the corticosteroid or glucocorticoid, um, was a co I think Cohen had a study where he actually injected uh, normal saline and found mm -hmm. not prominent differences. And, and folks, normal saline is just is just like a I don't, it's not water, but it's like just a normal fluid, like the stuff that's salt water. Yes, it's, it's salt water. I mean. So, and he, I mean, just the injection of that saline had some sort of therapeutic benefit too. And I, and I thought it was very interesting in that situation because you see the similar arguments of, well, it must be flushing out stuff. I mean, that was basically the argument that was used mm -hmm. on these treatment effects, not looking yeah. at anything else other than we're pushing stuff out. Uh, and I, I just find that as absolutely astounding. So sorry, I had to mm -hmm. go into that a little bit more. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So, what do you what do you say to them to the people? Because I, I I'm looking at some of the other uh, data that you had who were saying, well, the lidocaine does something, and it is and it isn't a placebo. I guess would be the word. And and I'm going to talk about placebo. I want to talk a little bit about placebos with you too. But but those people who are saying, well, this cannot be a placebo because, for whatever reason, what what would you say to them? Well, I I, I personally believe that it is a, a placebo for exactly the same reasons that you you just explained. Um, and and the one study that everybody cites as proving that epidural steroid injections work, um, interestingly enough, was a, a, a study published in um, 2010 by uh, Gowerman, 
Um, and this was a study in which um, there were 150 patients and they were randomized to one of five different groups. So there were 30 patients in each group. So a pretty small study. Um, and one of the groups was a group that got a, um, uh, an epidural steroid injection with, with steroid um, and a local anesthetic. One group got an epidural injection with a local anesthetic, just like in our study. And then they had a group that got saline, um, uh, just like the Cohen study. And then they had two groups that didn't get epidural injections. They got injections um, in, in, uh, sort of intra, um, intramuscular or, or into the, um, just into the soft, in, into the skin and soft tissue around uh, the, the, the back. Um, so really considered to be not a treatment at all for, for nerve pain or it doesn't even get close to where the, where the nerves come out of the back. Um, and what they found was that the steroid group did the best, um, and this was for people that had herniated discs with radiculopathy, so a different patient population, different, different conditions. Um, but uh, interestingly, they found that the epidural lidocaine injection did the worst. So it did worse than the, the, the placebo groups, did worse than the groups that got injections that weren't even around the nerves, that, it were, that just put salt water in the, uh, in the, in the soft, soft tissues. Um, and so that, to me, really shows that um, it, it, that the, the epidural steroid injection in that situation might work for the short term um, for that patient population um, better than these other things, but that the lidocaine really was the worst treatment. So it, it, it truly, in my mind, is, is a placebo treatment. Um, and, and I think that there's a lot of reasons why people in our study improved, um, uh, and the placebo effect is pretty, is pretty strong. And also just um, being part of a study and having the contact with the study group um, and um, going into the, the uh, procedure room and having something done. Um, we, we know that just the fact that somebody did something to them um, oftentimes has, has a, a mild treatment effect. Yeah, the, the, the visit itself has a potential to have a therapeutic effect and the, the relationship you have with your physician has a therapeutic effect and the way that you interact with your patients have a therapeutic effect and yet we, we ignore this so often it just just blows my mind um, the other part I like about that which which you said but I, I just want to be clear for the listeners here is so your your study for spinal stenosis which is again a little different but spinal stenosis um, showed no difference between the local anesthetic and the steroid and so the flack that you got that the criticism that you got was that actually the local anesthetic did something and yet the other study this again one study out of Many, 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 we're talking decades and decades and decades we've been doing epidural steroid injections. This one study that's used to support how they work so well, the local anesthetic didn't work. So it's, that also becomes picking and choosing these things. It's like, oh, well, the local anesthetic effect is here, but some, for some reason in this other study, we're just going to ignore it and, and it didn't have any, <laughs> it really didn't show Absolutely. that they were I mean, that, that just blows my mind. Um, and then, you know, I, I just want to do a little comment on placebo because... Um, and this is this is more for the listeners here because we are talking about placebo and, and um, after spending a lot of time talking with people and doing a lot of pain education, it seems like there is there's a stigma associated with placebo and even in the physician community we like to say placebo and then we throw it out, but it is it number one there's it's a neurobiological phenomenon folks I mean we we there's some excellent research coming out of Harvard on this that shows how the expectations of therapy and how these relationships can work and actually improve yourself and rather than ignoring that I think we need to recognize them and maximize them in a lot of ways 
Uh, and so I, I, I just wanted to kind of touch on that there because I, people hear the word placebo and then they think, oh, it's fake. Oh, it's it's all in my head. Oh, it's it's you know it's you know whatever. And it just it just drives me mm-hmm. crazy because the placebo effect is a real, very very real phenomenon. It is much more prominent in medicine than we're giving it credit for. Uh, and I think we're just kind of touching the the boundaries of it. And I think I think in future research is going to be really interesting on that on that kind of uh, uh, path here. So, yeah, uh, I, I also just just want to add on on that note um, that I have heard from some physicians say, well, you're right that the placebo effect is is strong, and maybe the effect of these epidural injections is is a placebo. But that means that that it's okay for us to do these injections, um, and that's a good enough reason to do the injections and and. I, I this argument uh, really bothers me because these injections, while they're safer than surgery, um, they are an invasive mm-hmm. procedure um, and they're costly and there is risk associated with them. So it, it really has you really have to think very carefully about that that argument. <laughs> yeah, and and I think I uh, thank you for bringing that up because I think that is that is truly important because I've I've heard people say that too. And it, that disturbs me more than, than just about anything because of the, the harms associated with these medications. People, you know, you get an injection like this, people, it is safer than surgery. But people have died from these. People have become paralyzed from these. We've, you know, three, was it two or three years ago, we injected a bunch of tainted steroid in people. They got fungal infections in their back. And um, it also reinforces the belief that these injections are doing something. So rather than, than recognizing, I guess my big thing about it is if, if if there is an expectation mm-hmm. treatment, which is, I, I like that, that ex, I don't like the word placebo as much as I like of, of therapeutic expectation, which is just sort of, I don't know what I mean. It just, it just sounds better than placebo to me. Um, then if we harness that in a way that doesn't have the harm, I mean, one of the first things we're supposed to be doing as physicians is not hurting people. And so um, I, personally, and uh, from, from my standpoint, as an outsider, not in a research facility and, and not involved with the, a lot of the other nice things that that are going on here. I think people who um, <laughs> you shouldn't even say this, but when when your when your pocketbook relies on it, it becomes easier to use certain arguments than not. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to even ask you to comment on that, Jenna, because I don't want you to get into that. But um, there also uh, I, I had to from one of your your uh, presentations that you did. Um, you had some certain questions that that I thought were very very good, and I like to hear your response on it. And one of it was. You know, these epidural steroid injections may not be doing anything or much compared to uh, other types of therapies that perhaps have less um, uh, less potential harm associated with them. But one of the questions, well, cons- other conservative treatments may also show statistically significant effects, but those effects are clinically insignificant. So because of that, we should be doing epidural steroid injections or these invasive procedures. And, and what, how would you respond to that? Well, I, I, I guess in general, I mean, it, if you don't show that this treatment is is effective, uh, there really, in my mind, is no reason to do this treatment. Um, and so, just because we haven't been able to identify, um, you know, another treatment that is that is much better, still doesn't mean that you that that you know that you that you should do an ineffective treatment and one that that carries harm. Um, what we find in in research with back pain is that any time that we study any intervention for back pain. Um, we, we, we find that it has a small effect, a very modest of, uh, effect um, or no effect at all um, on, on recovery. And I, I think that really, to me, speaks to the need for um, a, a, a comprehensive treatment approach that really takes into consideration the whole patient and not just 
a specific pain generator in their spine that you can target. Um, we, we know that chronic back pain um, also is associated with uh, a lot of other things that you have to address in order to, to, to get better. We have to get people um, actively exercising. We have to treat the fear that's associated with movement and, and, uh, and exercise anxiety, depression, sleep disturbance, and those are all things that sort of go hand in hand with, with chronic pain. Um, and if you don't have a treatment that actively uh, takes into consideration all of those things, I don't think that we're going to see big effects in any of these, in any of these trials. Um, and, and so chronic pain is, is, is really more than just the specific pain generator in the spine. It, 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 it is much more complicated than that. Um, so I think we have to do, and research have to do a better job of studying some of these comprehensive treatments and providing these comprehensive treatments for for, for people. Um, and in the in our trial, um, what we did find is that um, people always ask, well, can you predict who's going to do well with with an epidural injection, or predict um, who, who's going to do poorly? And we we couldn't really identify specific things that would. Um, suggest that somebody was going to respond better to an, uh, an epidural steroid injection versus a lidocaine injection. It looked like there was nothing that could predict that you were going to respond to one versus the other. But we did find that in general, people who had um, fear, um, fear of, uh, avoidance, so avoidance of activities because of fear, they had anxiety, they had depression, they had sleep disturbance. Those were all the people that um, didn't do well, no matter what treatment we gave them, uh, which, which treatment. And so it, that, again, to me, speaks to the need to really focus on those things. Yeah, which is interesting because of the same, you know, same thing when it comes to the literature on spine surgery for nonspecific low back pain. It's like they don't know who's going to get better, but we certainly know who doesn't get uh, who gets who doesn't improve and who and it's the same it's the exact same risk factors on those so we're definitely we're me, we're missing something here in this in this model of somehow pain oozes out from your body this biomedical kind of viewpoint here um mm-hmm. oh geez let's see we're at 33 minutes here um i don't want to take up too much more of your time but is there anything else that you would like to comment well if you had back pain what would you do i guess that's a that's a good way to end this is a is a researcher someone who's looked at all the data and you woke up one day and you had back pain what is what would you do about it yeah, it's a great question. I, I, I think that the the evidence is pretty strong that staying active and exercise are the most effective things in general for 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 general you know back pain. Um, and so I I, my, I guess my advice would be don't don't be afraid. Um, it, and and what we also find is that back most back pain resolves. Most back pain, um, even if you have some episodes of back pain, it usually resolves. So. Um, I, I think that the, my advice is really to stay active. Don't don't be afraid of it, um, and um, and recognize that any time uh, you are presented with a, a treatment for back pain that is offered as a cure for your back pain, um, to be skeptical <laughs> because um, most of these treatments uh, are are really not as effective as uh, they are often touted to be. And I think that is fantastic advice. So, uh, any any. Any last little comments here or, or things for the listeners, Jana? Uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Folks, um, great advice here, and uh, I, I think that sums it up. If you get an episode of Back Pain, big thing. Keep moving and don't be afraid. And until next time, stay well. <laughs>